0: Well, Greenland, I don't know, it got released somehow. It's just something we talked about. Essentially, it's a large real estate deal. CBS News has
1: learned that Mr. Trump wants to buy Greenland. Donald Trump is going to turn it into a golf course. Danish legislatures have called the idea grotesque.
0: funny, everybody's joking, but there is a non-crazy case for this. Well,
1: welcome back to the latest season of The Global Enquirer. we got season six underway for you here today. For those of you who don't know, The Global Enquirer is an undergraduate research podcast that focuses on global trends and how they're impacting real lives. I want to give a brief shout-out to Emmy Lockwood, our executive producer. She has done so much for us this summer uh, to make sure that this season is going to be the best one yet, as well as Andy Carluccio, our technical director, who really does more than you could possibly know. He edits all these episodes, makes it sound all beautiful, feeds me lines constantly. So he's, uh, you know, he's, he's the guy pulling all the strings here on the Global Enquirer. So we, we can't thank uh, both him and Emmy enough. You guys should also check out our brand new website that Andy designed this summer, globalinquirer.org, where you can also find the links to our latest applications. We are looking to always expand the Global Enquirer team, and if you think you have a suitable skill set, you should apply. We have a great episode for you here today. We are talking buying land, selling land, investing in land, what that means for the world, and how climate change is uh, you know, affecting these new deals. I have Walter Sharon, a third-year global development studies and foreign affairs major, with us today. How you doing, Walter? Great, thanks. How are you? I know you've been looking up something that's happened in the the news pretty recently. Uh, I know we're all kind of vaguely familiar with this
0: Trump Greenland debacle, but can you can you fill us in? Yes. So let's set the stage. Let's go back to August twentieth. Specifically, let's go to Twitter. See what Trump had to say on that day. Specifically, he said. Denmark is a very special country with incredible people, but based on Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen's comments, she would have no interest in discussing the purchase of Greenland. I would be postponing our meeting scheduled in two weeks for another time. So that kind of took off in a lot of different directions uh, because historically the relationship between Denmark and the United States is rather strong, so canceling a meeting sent off a lot of alarm bells. Um, but specifically that one phrase that said, Discussing the purchase of Greenland uh, also piqued a lot of interest. And what was the fallout from that? So, the Prime Minister said, I strongly hope this is not meant seriously. Late night comedians really ran with it. Of course he did! Greenland is icy, distant, and semi-autonomous. It's exactly Trump's type. And the Danish Prime Minister said Greenland is not for sale. But if there's anything I've learned from watching hundreds of hours of Property Brothers, saying it's not for sale is the classic opening gambit seriously come on you know what if you can't be tough with the nra go
1: after the danish prime minister there you go
0: new york times first line of their article said it started as a headline seemingly straight out of the onion so to to say that it was taken seriously right off the bat is a bit of a stretch of the imagination and like i don't know for
1: me this is not something i ever even considered countries kind of buying other territories i mean Once it was said, I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool concept. But has this ever happened before?
0: Right. Uh, So I actually have a question for you. When do you think is the last time the United States bought a significantly large area of territory? I'm guessing uh, Alaska? I don't know. Pretty close. Um, If we actually go back to 1917, uh, the United States actually had a deal with, believe it or not, Denmark to buy the Danish West Indies which are now known as the Virgin Islands. They were bought for $25 during the Wilson administration. So since then, really not much has happened. Um, A lot of that was pre-war fear of territory. So that's kind of a hint at a big reason why Greenland is in the conversation today. Specifically, why Trump wanted to buy Greenland in terms of what his team had to say was it's related to natural resources, mining, Denmark spends too much money to to, uh, keep them safe, which is, you know, fair, but a really subjective opinion to hold. And I think the general uh, community of political (laughs) analysts think it's more related to uh, military
1: ideas. Do we have capabilities in uh, Greenland or what's
0: going on there? Uh, Space and where you can keep missiles at the ready. It's not specific in terms of, oh, they want to build an Air Force base there because they already do have bases there. It's kind of more of a, a... grab at the whole area, so you can kind of do more than they do now. Um, Because Greenland currently is an autonomous area that is protected by Denmark, um, so they are self-governing, but that was seen as an opportunity by the Trump team to take over. So
1: is this like uh, a Russia thing? Get some nukes closer to Russia? or Kind
0: of more of a general strategic positioning. So it's a good way to think about this is in relation to China, because China is also very interested in Greenland. Specifically, uh, if we go back to December of 2018, there were three big international airports that were going to be built in Greenland, uh, and China bid really heavily for those contracts. They, like they do in a lot of other countries, they promised they would invest in infrastructure and roads and a lot of other sectors of their economy as long as they got to build those airports. So in the grand scheme of things, airports are not really you know, a military stronghold, but it's more of a, you know, we're invested in this land, we have this position here, and you're not going to take it away from us once we establish this. So kind of in recap of that, uh, China was actually not given those contracts. Greenland saw that their autonomy might be at risk if Greenland were to hand that over. So they actually said, no, we're going to let Denmark invest here. So the fact that uh, the United States tried to Jump at buying the entire territory, raise some alarm bells, especially in relation to that. So it's a little bit of some one-upsmanship going on here. Definitely, I think um, a lot of people on the Trump team probably had China in mind when they were thinking about this, and it does kind of make sense
1: for you know Trump's overall vision. This would be kind of a big win for him.
0: To you, does this seem kind of in line with his thinking? Yes. Actually, when you look at the facts of a military perspective as well as kind of an economic perspective, it's not the most outlandish thing possible. It kind of fits in line with, with like you said, what the Trump team's trying to do. A few days after this whole press briefing happened, uh, Tom Cotton um, released an op-ed in The New York Times explaining all the reasons why buying Greenland is the most logical thing in the world to do. And he did outline these points specifically in terms of the history. One major point worth noting is that the U.S. actually did try to purchase Greenland before. It was Do in 1946. Yeah, 1946. It was just another kind of military positioning offer. I believe it was $100 million that they offered. Stating, again, that it was a military necessity and irrelevant to Denmark to maintain. But, of course, it was rejected. Um, so was there, was there a price tag on this uh, time around? No price tag was named because I think they shot that down as quick as possible.
1: Uh-huh. I wonder
0: what that valuation of Greenland would be? Well, they do say that Denmark spends roughly 700 million per year on protecting Greenland. So something around that number, maybe a little higher. You know no one was making any specific wagers though. So do you see this as like the Trump
1: administration mirroring what China is doing in a lot of different countries? You know, a lot of foreign direct investment, trying to build up infrastructure, get their people over there, get them jobs, as well as kind of a
0: political favor within the region. Yeah, I think the easiest way to answer that is to look at the economics. So I don't know how familiar you are with the polar silk road, but this big initiative that China has started in the past few years. The One Belt, One Road initiative. Yeah, pretty much, Um, but specifically in the Arctic. So looking at areas that will create an economic shoot over the top of the globe rather than around. Um, So Greenland's obviously a very strategic spot in that whole system. Um, So they're already heavily invested in Greenland, regardless of whether or not they would actually buy the whole territory. So China isn't trying to buy Greenland because they've already invested so much into into it. Let's see. I have some statistics for you. Chinese imports of Greenlandic fish were the bulk of their $126 million trade in the first seven months of 2019. So that's the kind of thing you don't really realize until you go digging for it. Um, But China is definitely already heavily invested in Greenland, which would actually explain why the U.S. is so interested in stepping into that.
1: And this is all kind of part of China's master plan to reroute global
0: trade in in a way that favors their economy, right? Completely. I think the one that we might hear the most about is Africa. If you look at statistics and different numbers that they've invested in the continent, you see numbers of like 4 to 5 billion in different countries that have already been invested in terms of railways, mining systems, refineries, that kind of thing. Um, And that kind of generally goes unnoticed because of the extractable economy is kind of a, you know, it's not related to the innovation economy. So China is investing kind of quietly in these, quote unquote, underdeveloped countries, and that kind of creates a reliance that that country has on China. Some people are referring to China as the great loaner of funds now because so many- Like a big debt trap. Exactly. So uh, China is creating that kind of power that's not specifically military, but creates a dependency that- uh, the United States is not really doing.
1: Well, this is interesting because in season one we had an episode about a railway that China was building from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia to the coast. Um, in season three we had an episode about the Kyrgyz dry port in Kazakhstan and how it's it's the largest dry port in the world now. China has undergone these efforts to reroute global trade uh, in their favor, but a lot of people are, you know, signaling that this could be uh, an attempt to create some debt traps for these countries. And there's, you know, a lot of experts on both sides saying this might be debt traps, this might be genuine investment. Where do you fall? Do you think it is a debt trap or do you think it's China genuinely trying to invest in these places that are going to have the largest demographic growth, large economic growth over the next couple decades, and they're just trying to, you know, lay those
0: foundations now? Well, it's an important question uh, and one that really needs to be addressed in relation to looking at China now and what they do economically as well as in terms of all other strategic perspectives on a global stage. So, I think if one were to argue that it's investment for the sake of development, almost at an altruistic level, I think that's a bit of a stretch. China's history of investment in places that um, are struggling is never really one that looks at, oh, how can we help them out of this place? We're trying to reduce poverty. It's really nothing like that. Proof of that is that they have major poverty struggles in their own country. So if they're trying to alleviate global poverty, they might start in their own backyard. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's probably more likely that it's not necessarily that they want to create debt traps, but that's kind of a side effect that if they it don't happens, really mind. Uh, exactly. it happens, You <laughs> exactly. know,
1: sorry. Uh, no, I mean, I don't think they're altruistically doing this, but, you know, there could be that kind of both sides win um, mentality. China gets a new region to export to, and this place also gets a little, you know, more developed.
0: So has China ever actually tried to buy another country? Um, They have not. But in relation to what we're talking about in terms of investment, they have quite a history of doing that kind of thing. So if we look at Africa, like we just mentioned, there's a lot of numbers that point to crazy investment levels also in other parts of Asia. Um, you see infrastructure projects that have happened, especially in countries that are not necessarily struggling, but ones that could become susceptible to other forms of risk, and we'll get to that in a moment, but specifically talking about climate change. Um, they talk about a lot about uh, investment in Indonesia, things of that sort. One could say China has purchased a lot of land just by nature of saying, yes, we'll pay for this railway as long as we can use it, um, which is something that... Um, is a little little tricky to, to map because not all of these projects have to be publicly announced, which I think is an interesting, interesting thing. So not all the numbers and figures are given to the public. So to some degree, they're allowed to operate under the free market, however they'd like, um, with very little regulation factors in play. It seems like China's really setting itself up for the next century. I don't know. They are. Um, And what's interesting is that China is not the only one doing it. They're the one that's perhaps the biggest player in terms of how much they're spending and where they're spending. But just in doing research for this podcast, I looked into what Korea has done. Um, South Korea also has dabbled in this type of thing. Specifically 10 years ago in Madagascar, they offered to buy 1 million hectares of land not sure how familiar you are with hectares, because I'm not very familiar, but that's a decent amount of land, yeah. Um, and they said that they would promise to spend $6 billion in the next 20 to 25 years to build up the economy of Madagascar, roads, schools, that kind of thing. It was just a promise. There's really no way to you know, facilitate that without just saying, yes, we will do it at some point. So ultimately, there was an old leader of Madagascar at that time, a longstanding president who said, yes, this is fine. We would love you to invest here. We welcome that kind of money in our economy. However, the people were not a fan of this project because that is a ridiculous amount of land that is going to South Korea. And in terms of food security, which is also related to climate change, you know, 20 to 25 years from now, are we going to ship everything we have off to South Korea? That just makes no sense. So people revolted. Major political unrest actually resulted in a new president taking over, and then they canceled all of those contracts. So South Korea is no longer involved in Madagascar. Seems like they should have just bought Madagascar. <laughs> <laughs> See, that would Duh. be the simple response, apparently, to some leaders.
1: So when I first saw this news story breaking, I was like, this is truly ridiculous. But the more I thought of it, theoretically, it's kind of a cool concept. Why are countries no longer buying countries? Obviously it's something that used to happen a lot more back in the day, especially with, you know, the sale of colonies and land overseas, but uh, you know, why isn't this happening more? Why aren't why aren't we buying countries?
0: Well, it's a fair question, and I think the bottom line answer is sovereignty. Back Boom. in the day, <laughs> back in the day, a lot of this land that was flying around really did not have autonomy. I uh, didn't really have a propped-up government that kind of thing. So, The biggest reason that there was outcry over the sale of Greenland is because they are actually autonomous, despite their relationship with Denmark. That's not to say that the sale of land does not happen in other places. Uh, Because we talked about China in terms of investment, and that's the most glaring perspective in terms of spending wild amounts of money in other countries. But in terms of smaller countries that actually need land for a variety of reasons, specifically, you could look at climate change being one for island nations, that's a trend that is worth looking into. So one specific case study, you can look at what happened just this past month, is the Indonesian president announced that they were moving their capital city uh, out of Jakarta because of sea level rise and other factors related to that. So they're moving it to a small province that uh, is actually shared by Brunei and a part of Malaysia. So this is land that is not sovereign because it's kind of a a mix-up of different spots. Indonesia already has claim to it, um, so it's not really purchasing an area, but it's also basically purchasing an area, uh, kind of moving borders around and shifting their whole economy to a different location, which is kind of crazy. That is a really kind of mind-blowing concept. So it's just... No one's land, but everyone's land, like yeah, it's kind of a a joint agreement that this is fine. you can take this land, it's not super populated at the moment, like there's obviously settlement, but it's nowhere near the size of Jakarta, but it is geographically propped up so that it's not as much of a risk in terms of sea level rise. Um, there are really very few details out there about what it's gonna look like to move a capital, yeah. Like, do we know who's paying who, what? No details yet. Um, not sure how they're gonna do that in terms of infrastructure. I would be very surprised if China was not involved in some facet because of that level of infrastructure that needed to happen. So, definitely worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, look, uh, look out
1: for season uh, eight. We're gonna have an episode on this, guys. That is truly crazy. It-
0: I want more examples, Walter.
1: Come on, keep them coming.
0: (laughs) All right. Um, Well, this one is not as recent as that, but it is specifically looking at how one nation wants to purchase land elsewhere. So we look at Kiribati, a really small group of islands in the Pacific Ocean, very vulnerable to sea level rise. And this really took place about, uh, I want to say, yeah, five years ago um, when this really took off. They purchased land on one of the islands of Fiji, which is about 2,000 kilometers away from where they currently are. The land will be used uh, largely for agriculture and fish farming projects, things like that, uh, because they really can't support that in their own geography. But that is a specific case where they said, for this amount of money, we would like to purchase this land that you have because we can't support ourselves on the land we are currently on. And that is technically buying a sovereign nation to some degree. Obviously, they're not buying Fiji, but they're buying a part in terms of this contract. Um, So Fiji will benefit in terms of how their economy is related, um, and Kiribati will not be underwater in terms of their economy. So it is kind of mutually beneficial, but it also is a wide stretch to bring that back to Greenland because in no way is the U.S. sinking and needing Greenland. Right. But still, that is a pretty novel concept,
1: to me at least, how climate change is creating these different bargaining chips, kind of, so to speak, in a lot of these Pacific island nations. Uh, Putting climate change to the side, how would this work in, you know, places that aren't threatened by climate change? Just like, let's say a failed state. Let's say you have a failed state um, that's next to a relatively prosperous neighbor. Would it not be advantageous to up and sell the farm, uh, you know, sell all the land, be brought in, become one huge autonomous region. What really is holding people back? And is it
0: patriotism? Is it, uh, what is it? Um, I think that's where this really gets complicated, where it really gets tricky. In terms of investment, that's kind of the way you gain power, like we said, with China, without actually moving borders. Um, But once borders really begin to move, just look at the past 50 years of nationalism, um, the rise of what people believe in terms of their nation, where they belong. So anytime you move a border you're gonna have a problem because usually you're situated near someone that you don't really want to be situated near. So you look at Eastern Europe, you could look at North Africa, you could look at so many different places, and anytime a border, India especially, if you look at India, if a border in India is moved by like a half a mile, people start going crazy. So literally any, any sign of that in the future is something that will have political implications left and right. I don't know if that's a hesitation in terms of buying other countries. Perhaps it's just because that kind of thing hasn't happened in recent years because of, like we said, sovereignty, but I do think it's complicated in terms of nationhood. It certainly is, uh, but it is a cool concept. It's interesting because it seems to me like investment is the new colonialism. (laughs) I think you really could say that. Um, because it's no longer just investing in the people around you, but investing really far away and not to an extent where you just have a small percentage of their economy in relation. But like we see with China actually um, doing in Greenland, it's a significant amount of work that they're putting in. So yeah, I, I think it's definitely fair to say that a f- the power of a few are kind of taken over in terms of taking space. So in terms of nationhood as kind of an implication of moving borders around and sovereignty, a law professor at the University of Hawaii recently wrote a paper on nationhood after a nation moves, um, which is really interesting. It's a long article, and I'm sure we can put a link to that on our website, but she mentioned really stood out. She says, of course, the actual loss of the land origin is an unprecedented and potentially devastating exercise of migration and hybridity. To the extent that seas will continue to encroach due to climate change, the key question becomes, what is the best way for the international community to facilitate the transition? And she talks about kind of a, a social network in terms of nation states. But I think ultimately, it's likely that more moves like this are to come, um, starting small and increasing in scale. But as history tells us, anytime nations are pushed together and borders are erased and shifted, things tend to get really political really fast. And I think maybe the most interesting part is that a lot of this looks inevitable. And that's all we have for this
1: week. I'd like to give a special shout out to the International Relations Organization, our parent organization who you know funds all this and makes sure it can happen, as well as the IHGC here at uva for allowing us to use your space and the continued uh, partnership that we have uh i would also like to mention that we are on soundcloud spotify apple Podcasts, basically anywhere you get your podcast so be sure to comment or subscribe and stay up to date with global inquirer on facebook instagram and twitter You can tune in next week where I sit down with our former host, Nicholas Mortensen, to talk about toxic phrases within our political atmosphere. Uh, You know, words and ideas that can really kill political careers. So be sure to check it out. See you then.